Have you subscribed to the OTB Football Podcast? Well, I just can't that picture in Stephen Gerrard walking <laughs> out of the Etihad, you know, wearing that Liverpool jersey underneath the suit, a bit like Superman Clark Kent. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. You ain't shit! I wish I was 50 years younger you and I'd kick your ass. <laughs> Well, fans can be the harshest critics, you know. And they often are. A wife is often the harshest critic <laughs> of her husband. <laughs> I thought I was invincible. That's what you're, you're trained to believe as a sports person. There was four million people in Ireland who knew much more about managing <laughs> football teams than I did. When it comes to music, I can spoof it the best. Your sporting career is the best time you'll have, and, you know, you have to hang on to it for as long as your life, because everything else is pretty crappy. And this is not lies. Stephen Rochford has never spoken to Jimmy McGinnis in his life. This is the Saturday panel on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five. You can text us five three one zero six. We're streaming the conversation as well. You can listen on News Talk, but also watch us on the Off the Ball digital and social channels for Periscope and Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app. Just to let you know, in the Joe McDonough Cup, it is carry eleven points, Antrim nine at the moment at Cargan Park. It is down ten points, Meath seven and Ballycran, and Offaly lead Carlo by eight points to seven at O'Connor Park in Tullamore. Delighted to be joined on the panel this week to review the sporting week with the Sunday World Sports writer Roy Curtis. Roy, how's the form? I'm a great form, John, and you? Yeah, good. Are the dubs back? I think they're certainly in a much better position than they were. There's a lot of champion mentality in that dressing room that took exception at being written off. And I think next week against Kildare will tell a lot, but a potential All-Ireland semi-final against Kerry will be a funny situation because... I'd say for the first time in a decade, all the pressure will be on Kerry to deliver rather than Dublin. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're also joined on the line by Maura Trassi-Nicali, broadcaster. And now I believe, Doctor, you've qualified, Maura Trassa. I managed to drag myself over the line by the, the littlest of my fingernails, John. Yeah, during the week, we got our results on Tuesday. So, Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. It's all a bit overwhelming, but yeah, I'm, I'm delighted to finally. But I think... When you get to that point, you had envisions of all these wonderful, spectacular celebrations and just the exhaustion after the four years was just relief that we finally got there. What happens now, Mortrasa? Um, What happens now is um, we get to rest and recuperate for the next few weeks. It's a bit like the Leaving Cert. You apply for jobs and then you get a job offer in early June and you start interning at the end of June, early July and um, hopefully eventually set me on my path to becoming a GP. And Timmy McCarthy, the former Irish basketball team captain and coach, is with us. Timmy, how are you? I'm good form, John. Good to be here. Last time Roy Curtis was in here, he said he was reminiscing about Niall O'Toole and whoever owed each other 20 quid. And I believe you know you know Roy as well from the past. Yeah, Roy and myself crossed paths for many years. And uh, Roy was big into basketball in the, in the 80s, which was fortunately for me the golden era of the basketball. So yeah, Roy and myself are good buddies from that. I, um, I would have stayed in uh, Timmy's family home quite a bit um, when basketball was huge and sort of the, the stars, the great Liam McHale, Timmy and Tom O'Sullivan would have been the three foremost players. And I spent lots of nights at 285 Cathedral Road, I think it was, Tim. Um, Timmy's mother cooked the best Irish breakfast uh, imaginable. <laughs> and his, um, his dad was a great man for bringing me a pint to the Temple Acre Tavern, which I think was one of Roy Keane's strongholds for a while. And actually, John, on that point... Uh, Roy was one of the, the very few who was cherished by my mom so much that he had a key to the front door. So, he, <laughs> so if he was in Cork, he could pop in unannounced. And that's how special he was seen in the 285 Cathedral Road by my late mom and my late dad. God rest their souls. 
Oh, fair play, fair play, Timmy. Uh, great memories. Um, we're going to start with the review of the week with the Irish women boxers, Maura Trassa. Gold in Istanbul. I was kind of thinking to myself, where's the open top bus? Where's the parade? But it's great to get to know Amy Broadhurst, Stuffton Dock, and uh, Lisa Rourke of Ross Common a little bit better. Oh, absolutely. And it's an awful shame it wasn't televised on terrestrial TV where people could join in and watch it. It was an awful shame. Um, it's funny, actually. I was talking to um, some kids during the week and for the first time ever, there were boys saying, oh, I can't, I'll never be as good a boxer as a girl. And I was like, wow, how the tables have turned now that kids expect that if you're going to be a world champion boxer or, or an Olympic gold winner, you have to be a woman. And that's all down to, I suppose, the path that the likes of Katie Taylor and Kelly Harrington have forged for these women. And as she was reading during the week, it was an older article. It was published in the week before Katie Taylor's fight over Madison Square Garden with uh, Amy Broadhurst. Amy was there sparring with her. And I can imagine the experience that gave her and the confidence boost thinking, if Katie Taylor, I'm good enough to go and help her prepare for the fight of her life, why wouldn't she have her tail up going into that fight during the week? But great spot. But again, isn't the trouble of it all that you're celebrating these people who really are achieving against all odds when you know the other stuff that's going on outside of the ring. And it's a real shame that I wouldn't say it's overshadowing it, but we all know it's there. And I think at this point, people probably wish it was all just fixed rather than constant sniping isn't a good enough word for it, you know, but there's just trouble and it's not nice. Yeah, Bernard Dunn brought, brought her stand uh, a work to Tokyo, Roy. And um, we've had an exodus of uh, boxers to the pro ranks, Katie Taylor, Michael Conlon, after Rio. We've also had an exodus of high-performance people, Gary Keegan, Billy Walsh, and now Bernard. Um, Jack Chambers coming out and calling Irish boxing a mess. And despite all that, in spite of all that, we're winning these medals. Yeah, the Bernard Dunn situation juxtaposed against what's been achieved. I know from the Dublin footballers who had Bernard involved, and they talk about his high performance expertise and the, the, the value added he really gave them. Billy Walsh, one of the great men in Irish sporting history. Gary Keegan, who's worked across all codes with so many. And in spite of all this, in spite of losing this talent, boxing is the sport that keeps on giving. I think the legacy of Katie Taylor is just extraordinarily powerful and what it's delivered for women in Irish sport. Um, I was really interested that it was funny, they. Um, Amy Broadhurst and uh, Lisa O'Rourke actually pushed the Wagata Christie trial off, the, off a lot of the front pages. And it was a story in contrast. I mean, everything that, that the Wagata Christie trial is not. You know, these people are humble, high-achieving, inspirational, sincere. They're towering role models. I mean, their story is measured in perspiration, dedication and achievement, not in PR spin and Manola Blahnik high heels. I, I watched the... Katie Taylor fight, whenever it was, three weeks ago, stayed up through the night and I was in tears. The power, the emotion, what these people have done for Ireland. Boxing has gone into a lot of disadvantaged areas. It has given hope to hopeless oftentimes. And Katie has led that. And the amount of women now who want to box, but not just box, the amount of women who believe it's okay to go out and express themselves as sports people as a direct consequence of all Katie Taylor has achieved. Amy Broadhurst and Lisa O'Rourke are the next generation and it's an extraordinary legacy that I think even outmatches her Olympic gold and all those world titles. Right, very interesting. Uh, it's it, is it our national sport now, Timmy? Or boxing? Well, first, first of all, to, to win internationally is a phenomenal achievement. I mean, I think it's sometimes we, we take it for granted what you know what Amy and Lisa have done the last few days and what others have done previously. You know, it's not easy to win internationally. We're a small country. And, you know, no, it's not our national sport, John. I mean, our national sport is GA in, in reality. That's something that our national sport because both men and women play GAs. So that is our national sport. But I do believe that f for these two women to go out and, and to win on an international stage, 
we've just become accustomed to people like Katie and Kelly and, and others before that, you know, winning medals at the Olympics and World Championships. And we kind of take it for granted. To win internationally is exceptionally tough. To win in, in, in any tournament internationally is exceptionally tough. But to win World Championship gold medals is phenomenal. I mean, you know, Roy talked about the legacy of Katie Taylor. Like, these two women have like, gone to the pinnacle of their sport. It's just an amazing achievement. And there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, as, as Maura Trassen made a point about, you know, outside the ring. But to have the ability to get inside the ring, irrespective of all that stuff goes on, and deliver at the highest level when it really matters. Like, it's, it's okay to deliver in practice, but this is at the highest level when it really matters. I just think it's an amazing achievement. And I think we should never take this for granted. And what has happened in the last sort of maybe 20 years, you know, we saw the boxers are always winning medals and we just have taken that a little bit for granted. I think we undervalue what they're doing. It's a phenomenal achievement to perform at the highest level internationally and to win gold medals is just off the charts. Yeah, Jack Chambers uh, on Claire Byrne said the following, it's clear there are very serious issues in boxing. It's a mess, quite frankly. You've got this constant internal conflict which is undermining boxing overall. I'm very clear as Minister for Sport but what I want to see happen, there's going to be an EGM next month. There'll be an opportunity for boxing as an organisation to fully embrace the recommendations that have been set out in the McNeese review, that independent review. Being very clear that if we can't, we won't fund behaviour like this and governance dysfunction. I want to see boxing fully adapt and embrace all the recommendations. So you hope the government will actually show a bit of teeth in this. Um, it's a amazing because Amy O'Rourke obviously is the Olympian and Lisa wasn't even on the Sport Ireland carding system obviously she will be now but also more trusted they get $100,000 now where the money's coming from is another question because Ian O'Riordan's written about that today in the Irish Times but $100,000 is going to set them up to a degree Um, I don't know if their disciplines will even be there in Paris but I suppose the worry for Irish boxing is there's no Olympics at the moment in 2028 with boxing on the programme and um, the, the temptation of professionalism is also going to be now more uh, heightened, I suppose, for them. Absolutely. And especially then when you see what professionalism is offering, not just female boxers, but boxers as a whole. Um, I was in Madison Square Garden a few weeks ago and right. I have never experienced anything like it. Did you go? Did you go? Like, did you make it to your business to go over and see it? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was the weekend after I finished my exam. So it was all planned out. Myself and my cousin, we went, my friend went over. My cousin came up from North Carolina. We had to meet a man from Monaghan on the corner of 34th and 5th for our tickets. He gave them to us. We <laughs> went down. It was my first visit to Madison Square Garden. Uh, got in. And at the end of that 10th round, I turned around to my cousin from North Carolina who had heard of Katie Taylor but didn't know anything beyond a great woman from Ireland who won Olympic gold and was breaking boundaries but didn't know any more than that. I turned around and I'm not lying. Catherine was in tears and she said I've never felt anything as emotional as that the place was so so loud and I could understand if you're an amateur boxer and you're seeing what somebody who's very attainable to these women Katie Taylor rings them and congratulates them she spars at one of them so they're looking at the path she's already worn for them and they're seeing it literally is paid with gold if you work hard you will be rewarded you have this massive experience 19,000 people it was so loud we couldn't even hear the announcer for a lot of it at the beginning the shivers going down your spine when Katie did her ring walk the noise in the third round it was so loud that neither woman heard the referee and we didn't hear it we didn't hear the bell going either. And then the fifth round, the Katie's shaky round, we'll call it that way. There was one minute where, you know, she went and we're like, oh, and you could just hear the whole crowd go, oh, the sharp intake of breath. And I just remember hearing one male voice somewhere in the auditorium starting off with the ole. 
and then the noise started again and started again and started again and you were kind of willing Katie along and that's she's shown that you can win herself and Kelly Harrington and also hopefully these younger women coming along they show you can win but the difference is there's lots of people who have won once the difference between these is that she was able to come back when she was on the ropes in Rio literally on the ropes after what happened and again at Madison Square Garden a few weeks ago it's a great lesson but for any woman or man at home who's involved in amateur boxing and we're only seeing and hearing about some of the stuff I'm sure if you're actually embedded in it it's so much more difficult to try and get your day done and try and get your training done and try and work in that kind of system and you're probably thinking we don't even know if this is going to be in the Olympics in a few years time you know, wh why would I do this to myself when I can actually pursue a career that will pay me off and will give me money? $100,000 is a drop in the ocean now for Katie Taylor. Eddie Hearn is, uh, could be onto a winner here, couldn't he? Well, that's it. I mean, amateur boxing, to use that phrase, even though there's money involved in it now, has so much potential. But the, malest, the maladministration, the lack of opportunity, the potential loss of Olympics. I mean, neither of the girls who won gold um, this week their, in their weight class doesn't feature yes. even in Paris. Paris. Yeah, yeah. So this is a real issue. I mean, Amy Broadhurst, for example, is a natural lightweight, but that's Kelly Harrington's weight. So two into one doesn't go. And when you see, I mean, you, Amanda Serrano was talking about she had fought world title fights for tiny sums, 1,500 quid. Katie, or, Katie Taylor has changed all that. And that night in Madison Square Garden, has just opened so many doors for professional boxing and professional boxers to make money. Women's boxing, yeah. Yeah, women's professional boxing, sorry. It's it's now seen as something that can work, something that will draw in crowds. I've been in Madison Square Gardens many times. I don't think, I know I was watching from 3,000 miles, I've ever experienced an atmosphere like that. There was something visceral and something heroic. And if you're, if the, she, Katie has been the trailblazer, the pathfinder, it's actually easier for other fighters to step yeah, into that yeah, now yeah. and and reap the benefits of what she has heroically sown. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, let's move on to the hurling championship, Timmy McCarthy. Um, are you enjoying these group uh, round robins with Leinster and Munster? It's all on the line for Cork tomorrow. It's amazing that you think that. I would never have believed growing up as a young lad that Cork and Tipperary could be the bottom two teams in a five-team uh, round robin in Munster. So I wasn't enjoying it in in a Munster sense until last Sunday, because <laughs> <laughs> I thought Cork were um, pretty lame in the first couple of games. But last Sunday they pulled out a performance, and you know they've given themselves a chance tomorrow. I mean, the great thing for Cork tomorrow, if they win, they're through. I mean, that's actually the best situation they could find themselves in. But they're through as third because obviously Limerick and Clare are going to be in the Munster finals. So. I'm a great believer in knockout. I just love the knockout environment in that sense, right? So I've always loved the, you know, so tomorrow's great for me in a Cork sense because, yes, John, I wouldn't have expected Cork and Tip to be um, down at, at the bottom of the table. I have a lot of friends in Tip, and, you know, they have, they have had many years of famine where Cork enjoyed um, many years of success. We're now kind of enjoying the, the famine, unfortunately, or having a famine in that sense. So um, tomorrow's winner takes all. I mean, if you think of it from Cork's point of view, it's winner takes all. So, you know, the, the when you get to the, this stage of it in, in all the games, though, there's there's something at stake tomorrow. There's something at stake tomorrow and, and today for the teams in Leinster, obviously tomorrow for the teams in Munster. So I'm enjoying the standard of hurling, though. I'm enjoying the standard of hurling. And I think that there's been some excellent games in, in, in both um, provinces. The the standout team at the moment for me, you know, have actually been Clare. And I think Clare... Good man to me. In the way, in the, yeah, well, in John, in the way they play the game, I just love the way they play the game. And I think that they stood up to Limerick last week and 
you know, look, Limerick are the, are the favourites and they're, they're raging hot favourites in the way they play the game. But I do believe they're beatable, John. I believe that teams can beat Limerick if they deal with their aggression and then stretch the pitch. But if you don't stretch the pitch against Limerick, um, you find yourself in difficulty. And I thought Clare stretched the pitch last week for many um, as, minutes in the game in that sense. It was a brilliant game last, last weekend. So, you know, they're in the Munster final. But if you're going to beat Limerick, you want to beat them when it matters. And, you know, you don't want to give teams second chances. So right now, you know, I just want Cork to get through tomorrow. I believe that um, it'll be a go with Kilkenny in Leinster. And I think Dublin will be the perth- will be the team that will get the third spot. So that's where I see. It'll be Clare and Limerick, Galway and Kilkenny, and the Dubs and, and, and Cork will be um, in, in the All-Ireland series. Limerick beatable? At the start of the season, I thought Waterford had a very real chance of now putting it, it right up to them. And I mean, the... the the twin stories of this hurling championship have been Clare's rising and Waterford's sinking. I mean, they're really in a, a bleak and almost apocalyptic place compared with where they were two months two months ago, where they were league champions. Bally Gunner were all Ireland champions. Liam Liam Cahill had recommitted. John Milan was talking about them having the strongest squad in hurling, and it's imploded. And when confidence is lost in sport, when it starts seeping trying to plug those gaps is very difficult and the problem for Waterford now is it's entirely out of their hands I think they've probably got a very good chance of winning in Clare tomorrow because Clare have rested both Tony Kelly and John Conlon well at least from their their starting lineup. but I'd be surprised if Cork don't win in against Tipperary and that is a catastrophic situation that, that Waterford find themselves in Liam Cahill having turned down the Tipperary job this was seen as Waterford's year that it, that maybe they had it to push Limerick right to the brink end the 60, 63 year wait but where they are now I really don't envy them Maura Trasset doesn't say much for the league does it Waterford won the league scored four goals in the final against Cork Wexford were unbeaten in the group stage and they're on the verge of going out as well this evening maybe they're too close to the two competitions maybe there was too much emphasis put on these competitions so close to the round robin Well we'll put it this way I don't think any management was putting massive emphasis on any kind of league performance this year, aside from any team who was involved and sure they weren't relegated, you know, and stay safe above that line. We in media are probably the ones guilty of pushing that. I mean, how many column inches were written about, oh, Waterford are going to win Lee McCarthy when they were competing against a Limerick who were still recovering from their team holiday? We've seen it year after year. We do this all the time. We build up teams and we all know the sports science is so exact now. Teams are they're trying to peak them at the right time. But then it's an amateur sport, so there's a lot of external variables that come into it as well. You get hit with an injury or two that nobody plans for injuries. Some teams, the bigger teams, like the Dublin footballers, the Limerick hurlers, can they can, you know, they can soak some of that in, but some of the other teams can't. And like Waterford are a great hurling team. It's just the Munster Championship is so cutthroat. You just cannot afford to have an off day. And that's what they had. And it's cruel, but it's what it's also what is amazing about sport. So instead of maybe saying, is the league and the championship too close together? My mindset would be, let's make the championship more like the league to get people peak at the right time so that we see teams at their, in their pomp at the right time instead of people like dirty winter hurling in January and February like it's not nice for anyone to watch we should be seeing all this now that would be my thinking Galway Mortrasa how, how is Henry fixed to win the All-Ireland? 
Well, we would be fools to um, to assume that we're going to beat Dublin considering Galway's recent history against Dublin and hurling over the last few years. Um, I was actually, the last big Galway game was when they played Kilkenny. That was the weekend I was over in Madison Square Garden. I was looking, trying to find match reports of what happened that game against Kilkenny. All I could see was footage of the handshake. So I don't actually know how they went. Um, Galway, every year, they, they always prime to do well. Um, our geography hasn't helped us, but I think we're getting better in that department as well. Um, they have good hurlers. They're young hurlers. I think it doesn't matter how far they go this year, they will take a lot with it. And I think next year, and this year as well, but potentially next year, they'll be a dangerous beat. But every team is beatable, including Limerick. I was, Everyone is beatable. I was in Parnell Park last Saturday and the place was packed. It was a lovely summer evening and there was a real feel-good feeling around Dublin hurling after beating Wexford. And the second half performance against Kilkenny really just wiped that away. It turned it to dust instantly. I'd um, Galway do have a very poor record against Dublin historically over recent years, but I'd be stunned if Galway didn't win with a little despair this evening. OK, I'll just let you know in terms of the Joe McDonough Cup, it is Meath and down in Ballycran at halftime. It is Meath 2-11, down 16 points. Offaly and Carlo, Offaly leaning by 10 points to 8 at the break in the John McDonough Cup and we also have Antrim against Kerry and at the moment in that one uh, it is Kerry 14 points Antrim 11 points 53106 you want to get in touch with any text messages for Roy Curtis of the Sunday World broadcaster Maura Trassini-Cali and the former Irish basketball team captain and coach Timmy McCarthy reviewing uh, the week going to talk about uh, Saipan uh, the end of the Premier League season and also the USPGA after the news at 2 o'clock so don't go away here on Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk we're back after this Saturday panel on Off the Ball. This is Off the Ball Saturday on News Talk. John Duggan with you through until five o'clock. You can text us 53106, tweet us at Off the Ball. Now, just to let you know, our first roadshow in three years is nearly here. The football pod have just added a Mayo legend to the lineup for Castlebar June the 2nd. Joining Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue who at the Royal Theatre is a man they had several battles with on big days at Croke Park, but we're sworn to secrecy for now. Stay tuned over the coming days when all will be revealed. A brilliant night of football chat, plenty of focus as well on Mayo, the football pod, with Paddy James and Tommy Rooney in Castlebar. Thursday, June the 2nd, tickets 20 euro plus booking fees go to otbsports.com forward slash events now for more this is part two of the Saturday panel reviewing the sporting week talking about all the things that are topical with the uh, Sunday World sports writer Roy Curtis in studio and then on the line broadcaster Maura Trassini-Cali and the former Irish basketball team captain and coach Timmy McCarthy you can listen on Newstalk also watch us as well on the digital and social channels on Off The Ball for Periscope and Twitter at Off The Ball YouTube, Facebook and on the OTB Sports app Timmy are you sick of Saipan as a cork man does it matter anymore are you still taking a huge side on basis of Roy Keane or are we actually a McMahon or how do you feel about the whole thing it's 20 years today since Roy Keane had the row with the goalkeepers uh, in Saipan so I'm sick that Saipan happened okay that's the first thing because I thought we lost a real opportunity to progress very far in that World Cup I think when you look back at the facts of what happened in Saipan and sometimes the facts have got lost along the way is you know, um, the, the 20 years today, as you say, John, the, the row with the goalkeepers. I think Keane had a very fair point about the, the standard of, uh, of equipment and, and training facilities that was there uh, in their hands. I think Roy Keane deciding to leave was wrong. I, I do believe he was wrong when he decided to leave. But then Mick McCarthy failed as, as the manager in when it was resolved he would stay in not keeping him. Because at the end of the day, he was the best player. And, you know, and we had a real chance in, in the World Cup. So Keane was wrong at the start and McCarthy was definitely wrong for sending home, in my view, because, you know, if he had better management ability, he would have handled that situation differently. I thought, 
you know, the, the putting him keen into the situation of, you know, um, taking him on in front of everybody, I just felt was going to create an environment that ultimately ended up with Keane being sent home because he was sent home. People kind of have got lost the fact that he, he came home. He was sent home. He wanted to come home. He agreed to stay. And then he was sent home. So, you know, I'm just sick of the fact I actually was in that. I was actually in uh, Korea for that World Cup. I saw him play Spain live uh, in, in the when we lost in the um, second round, I think. And yeah. you know, we, we, we had a nice draw. If we, you know, if we had Keane in that team, we had a nice route, you know, potentially to a final. We really had a nice route, you know, the way the draw worked for us in that sense. So the, my, my sadness and, and, and sickness is the fact that we lost a real opportunity. Again, I talked earlier on about Amy and Lisa performing internationally. This was our best player. You know, the, uh, the person who some would argue single-handedly dragged us through games, you know, particularly the, the, the Dutch game in Lansdowne Road, to get to the World Cup. And I just believe Keane was wrong, so there's no ambiguity about that, in saying he was coming home. He then decided to stay, and I believe Mick McCarthy's inability to manage at the top level when the real pressure came on ultimately cost us uh, a potential opportunity to get to a final. That is brilliantly summarised, Timmy. When you were in Korea at the Spain game, were you thinking about Roy Keane? Was he in your head? He was. And, you know, it's as uh, what was in my head was like, we really had a chance. Like, now, you know, the guys that were there performed. You've got to give them credit. They got the team that was there performed to the best of their ability in that sense. But we were missing that class, that just little bit of difference that separates you at the, at the top level. The other thing that actually annoyed me, okay, and, you know, when I was in at that Spanish game, John, I hadn't all the facts of what had happened with Keane and McCarthy, and they came out obviously much later. But what really disappointed me as a former international coach was that Mick McCarthy didn't know that um, Spain had only 10 men uh, for a period in, in extra time. I just thought that was scary. I thought that was scary because they had taken used their subs and then they got a guy injured. That really disappointed me and it kind of just proved to me at the highest level, in the most intense moments, I just think Mick McCarthy just was a little bit short. That's all it was in that sense. And, you know, um, and I really felt, John, in that game that if we had Keane and then the way it opened up for Spain and, you know, on the way to draw it, I said, oh my God, we had a real chance because, and then you got to get to a final against Brazil and you never know because, you know, Brazil weren't a brilliant Brazilian team in that World Cup. So, it was just, you know, a huge loss. So people write about it, people talk about it 20 years on. I just think it's sad that we got to the biggest event without our best player. Roy Curtis, you were in Saipan. What are your thoughts 20 years on? It was like having a seat next to JFK as the Dallas motorcade made its way through Dealey Plaza and Lee Harvey Oswald loaded his rifle. It was an extraordinary time. Um, in hindsight, it was it has taught me the importance of nuance. Everyone looked upon this, myself included, in black and white, and the grey areas were completely ignored. It was a row that it annihilated all perspective. It was the end of an age of football innocence, Euro 88, Italia 90, USA 94, where the results almost didn't matter. It was this statement of Irish identity, and it was a nation coming together and feeling good about itself. That all died on that 12 by 6 chunk of Atlantic rock. At the time, I was firstly in the Keane camp. Everyone instinctively took sides and we sort of overstated this heroic nature of Roy standing up against a dropping in standards. The issue was far more complex than that. Um, Roy was seething 
as we got on the plane in Dublin. When we landed in a first stopover in Amsterdam, he had a go at a number of journalists who'd um, suggested he had snubbed Niall Quinn's testimonial. It was an early sign that the, the volcano was rumbling, if you like. And there was a scene in Tokyo airport and Ireland was the only one of the World Cup protagonists who stopped in Japan and then flew beyond it to another three hours out, three hours back. This isn't like just beside Japan. This was in the middle of This the- was the Canary Islands from, Island, from right. Ireland. And the facilities were pretty similar to what you'd get at the Canary Islands. Um, a lot of people from that area, that was the sunshine spot they would decamp to. Or an or. Or, or an or, precisely. So we're in Tokyo Airport in the, uh, the transit lounge. And my memory is of Shea Given having something like a ghetto blaster and he played one of the uh, the Gift Grub Radio Roy's. Um, and I was watching Keane intently while this was playing. And he had this glacial smile. And I thought, oh, my God, there may be trouble <laughs> ahead. Um, if, if I was to pinpoint um, Mick's failing, is that Roy should never have been in Saipan. There were world-class facilities awaiting Ireland when they got to Japan a week ahead of the World Cup. And Mick, as had been his experience as a player under Jack Charlton, the players had a bit of a blowout at the end of the season. It it would seem crazy now, but back then it was pretty much still of the time where but you this did this is Roy sort Keane of, of Manchester United. Roy Keane of Manchester United, Roy Keane who was living his life a certain way and the notion of partying a week before a lot is I, I recall the barbecue on the uh, the Sunday, I think it was, in Saipan. It was, Mick, it was a, maybe a noble, but a really ill-conceived idea. Uh, he invited the journalists over to a garden area of the team hotel for a get-together and party. And at one stage, um, the MC wanted a player and a journalist to uh, come to the stage to dance some traditional rumba and it was Robbie Keane and myself who ended up there. And as I said to you off air, Robbie has played with some duds in his career. But by God, he found a, a new level of uh, incompetence that night. And then everybody decamped to the Beefeater bar until five, six, seven in the morning. And there were crazy stuff going on. Steve Staunton, I recall, had a go with me because I'd written a piece about testimonials and that it was sort of a bit time expired that guys on the wages they were on should still get testimonials. Ian Hart, who was a, a lovely guy, was wandering around with a pool cue trying to get anybody to play games of pool. There was there was just stuff going on everywhere. There was one particular uh, player who remained nameless who sort of was talking to us wondering why we suggested that his lifestyle as a professional athlete wasn't maybe all it should be. And he was completely missing the irony that he was smoking a cigarette and had a bottle of beer in both hands at four <laughs> in the morning a week before the World Cup. Chaos then. So this is the sort of anarchic situation yeah, yeah. that was there. Right. And then, like, I, I think the biggest thing having worked uh, at the time as a young lad in the, in the Today FM uh, sports department was the confusion and like, if we only had smartphones back then, maybe this might have been avoided. If we only had proper technology and no confusion. It's only 20 years ago, but it's a million years ago in terms of the advancement in communication. There was also the huge time difference and it was really, really difficult. We were there. Roy, when we moved on to Japan and Roy had gone home, it was so difficult to find anything out. The famous Tommy Gorman uh, interview with Roy, my room, we, we couldn't get internet connections and somehow we got one in my room and I think the whole travelling media party were cramped into my bedroom trying to listen to an interview 
that we were writing about and we were the last to know about, if those lines of communication were more efficient as they are now, things could have been resolved. If people hadn't overreacted in the the vacuum created by the lack of communication and the lack of understanding of what was happening on the other side. Um, Mick McCarthy always as an individual, I would have ghostwritten Mick's columns and, and knew Mick well. Mick was a fairly insecure guy because people used to suggest he wasn't a great player. And Mick would always say, eh, I could play a bit, you know. And the thing was, Mick's greatness was that he rose above those limitations. But there was always, there was always an element of insecurity with him. I found when he was dealing with really elite sporting individuals and Keane obviously had a, a sharp tongue and a sharp wit and there was a tension between the two historically and I think just a confluence of circumstances resulted in a mass eruption. Did you feel it was going to be resolved? Were you as amazed as we all were in a way that they couldn't sort it out? We were speaking to various people in back channels and it looked like it was going to be solved Michael Kennedy and John Delaney, who sort of rose to prominence at that time. Um, it was a sort of an interregnum period, funny, in the um, the FAI and Brendan Menton had taken over. Um, and maybe there wasn't an experienced figurehead who'd had a, a lot of experience of dealing with both individuals who may have been able to bring things together. We... We were getting updates on the hour almost from back home, different people making phone calls. And there was so much confusion, so much conflicting opinion. Um, Nobody knew what was happening. But I think there was an element that took so much away from the experience, as, as Timmy talks about. I remember sitting in the press box in the first game, Ireland and Cameroon, getting a picture taken with two colleagues, Vincent Hogan and Philip Quinn, and saying to them, you know, I don't care a jot whether we win or lose today. And... I would have travelled. Innocence lost element. It was definitely the age of innocence. Went. I travelled to Euro '88 as I think I was 19 years of age, and it was this: Ireland were stepping out into the world. We were proving that we could be something on the international stage. The '80s had been a really grim time: emigration, the troubles up north, unemployment. There was very little to be proud about if you were Irish at that time and young. You were really on a boat to Liverpool or on a flight to America oftentimes if you wanted to better yourself, if you wanted to build a life for yourself. And this football team came along, a lot of them sons of emigrants themselves, and they gave Ireland a sense of itself that was entirely different to anything that had existed up until then. We were able to hold our heads high on the international stage. We were able to walk among the giants and say, we belong here. It was something you could wear this badge of Irishness that you didn't feel any shame for doing so. And I think an awful lot of that died in Saipan. And that's why I think with the Late Late Show last night, Maura Trasa, and you've got um, you know, the new young generation and multicultural generation of Irish players, I think we need to qualify for a World Cup to put all this to bed. Because I think it's why, the reason why it's painful is because we haven't been to a World Cup since. We haven't been able to for, form new memories and cherish new memories as Irish soccer fans on the world stage. I don't think this will ever be put to bed. Like, I was still in school when this happened, and I put up on my Instagram today that this would be discussed. And the amount of replies from people my age and younger, and also maybe of an older vintage who still have very strong feelings about it, it's going to be like, it's it's 
it's the Garth Brooks saga of the early <laughs> noughties, but more serious. And, and I heard somebody describe it today saying, you know, in Ireland, we're very good at getting very, very, very wound up on things that don't really matter. Um, but what I found really astonishing about the whole Saipan thing, and at the time I got it, but obviously I didn't have a more adult and mature perspective on it. Today I was reading in the Irish Independent, there was a timeline of how it all happened. And for the first time ever, I actually sat down properly. I mean, I've read the books and stuff, but an actual appropriate objective timeline. And what astonished me was the way Roy's after describing there, the access the media had. And this was a row that seemed to have just mushroomed out of he said, he said, well, he said, well, I'm not going to say. And it was all played out, you know, in press releases and an interview with this person, an interview with that person. You were thinking, my God, if they just had an impartial mediator in there, who knows what it might have been fixed. And you kind of understand now why that stuff just would not happen today. Can you imagine today traveling with the Irish team and having that kind of access? And we lament it, you know, because you lose some of the color. And I think the reason we love that team of Italia 90 and 94 as well is because of that access and people got to know the players. Um, and maybe that's the problem today. We don't know them as well. We don't have the same grow for them. We haven't, that they fought hard in an Ireland jersey but we just don't have that emotional connection with them. But I think on the off chance, I think possibly the media being as embedded as they were possibly didn't help that situation either at the time. But I don't think it'll ever be resolved. I was firmly Team Roy at the time. I was very black and white in my thinking. I was a teenager. There was no grey in life. I think today I'm still a bit Team Roy, but he should have stayed. I'm Team Mick all the way, so there you go. <laughs> um, but I'm hoping that Gavin Bazunu, she's always egg Benny. I'm hoping that you know we're entering a new phase here, Roy, that we're not talking about this kind of stuff. Well, there's certainly green shoots. It has been a fairly miserable time administratively in the FAI and on the field. Really, since 2002, okay, we qualified for 2012 and it was a disaster from start to finish under Trap. Um, we had the great, we had a couple of great days under Martin O'Neill in 2016, but there was a sense it was that it was a fleeting visit to to glory days rather than the start of something solid. Um, I think there are foundations. I think, though, there is an awful long way to go. We have we have shown some promise, and I certainly agree with you. It's it's wonderful to see that sort of cultural union, the, the new Irish, if you like, being embraced. Um, that's a very positive dynamic. But as a nation, and this, I suppose, is true of all countries, we will only really bond behind that team if the success at a major tournament. That's just the inevitability of life. We support winners. I mean, I shamelessly jumped on the Kelly Harrington bandwagon. I wouldn't have spoken to her beforehand, um, but I was utterly immersed in what she did at the Olympics and the kind of individual she was. And you see someone from inner city Dublin just representing that community with such force of personality and such inherent decency. And I think that's what we relate to when we have... We, we talk about access. Back in the day, you had access to those players. We went into All-Ireland dressing rooms to losing dressing rooms five minutes after the game and sat with guys who were broken-hearted, the whole year shattered, and we asked them to speak to us, and they did. And you got wonderful colour, and you got an understanding of what these things meant. And I think if we are to have a new age of the nation behind the Irish team, you're not going to get that access again. So therefore, you need real high profile success and a real reason for people to bond behind them. Interesting. Yeah. Roy Curtis, uh, Mark Anthony Kelly, and Timmy McCarthy on the Saturday panel reviewing the week and talking about everything that's topical. 53106, if you want to get in touch with a question or a comment uh, tomorrow, 
Will it be Aguero again? We're talking about memories. Ten years ago, to me, it was Aguero, Man City, Liverpool. Uh, it's tomorrow in the final day, the Premier League season, one point between them. Are City going to just uh, pass Aston Villa to death? Uh, Steven Gerrard, obviously, there's a, there's, there's a hook there in terms of the story. Uh, can you see a bit of drama? It would be a sad if Leeds went down. A lot, lot to play for. There's a lot to play for tomorrow. I mean, if you think about it, there's obviously, you know, there's the title. Um, City are the best team. There's no questions that they're, in my view, they're the best team. And, you know, should get the job done against Villa, despite the, the Steven Gerrard uh, link that's obviously been talked up in the last couple of days in that sense. But you never know, you know, the year against QPR, you know, it's hard to believe it was 10 years ago, but I mean, it was, you know, it was extra time, injury time, they got two goals, you know, and I mean, I see Rooney this week, despite his wife's challenges in court, still had time to throw the question about what did QPR do, you know, until how City, you know, get over the line in that sense. So I think tomorrow's fascinating because you have the title at stake, you then obviously have the final fourth position. It's your team's, John, to lose, really. I mean, it's, it's unlikely they're not going to get the result against Norwich. Um, and then you have Leeds and Burnley. So you have Arsenal and, and Spurs hoping to get something out of it tomorrow, obviously. You have Burnley and Leeds hoping to get something out of it. And obviously at the top, you have Liverpool and City. Liverpool have had a lot of luck. You know, if you think of it, they've won two cups against my team and both in penalty shootouts. So, you know, they're, um, it's not beyond that they could actually win the league tomorrow, you know, because even against Southampton, you're nice, you know, nine changes and they still, you know, managed to get the result. And the second goal, if you look at it, the winning goal, you know, it was kind of a fluke, really. So things have kind of gone Liverpool's way in the last number of weeks. You know, they haven't been playing their best. You know, they've dropped off their form, but they've still managed to get the results in both Cup, obviously, in the league. But tomorrow, my, my view, John, is I believe that City will, will have just too much. They'll pass Villa to death, and I just think they have too much talent uh, against a, a very average Villa team in reality. And I think Jared has done a reasonably good job there. I think that Spurs uh, one day will win the fourth spot because of their performance against Arsenal last Thursday week, which is actually what set has set up tomorrow. So I think they'll get the job done. And I think that um, Burnley will stay up. I think irrespective of the result, I, I think it'll be very difficult for Leeds to get a result at Brentford. Brentford have had a really smashing season for their first year in the Premiership. Uh, they've done really well against a lot of the teams, you know, the top teams. They play a nice brand of football and it's carefree, but they want to finish the season strong. So, so my prediction is City for the title, Spurs for fourth and Leeds to be relegated. There's always a chance more trusted though. Michael Thomas at Anfield, Ronan O'Gara's drop goal, Max Verstappen last year in the Grand Prix finale. There's always a chance of something happening that we don't expect. Always. And especially this year for City because City has not had a plain sailing. They have all the best players. They have all the best of the best in every shape and form. And yet here they are hanging on by a thread at the end. And it just seems to be there's a little bit of brittleness in them that I don't know if it hasn't been dealt with or if they're still trying to figure it out. But a team like Liverpool could end up stealing it away from them because even though Liverpool have not been the best on paper, they've made mistakes. I think was it in January they were so behind everyone was saying there's no way they'll catch up with them. But there's a heart to Liverpool. So you're dealing with all that. That's And obviously that's to one side. And then Villa could beat City. Like you could be sitting in a bar tomorrow night saying... Geez, wasn't that a great game by Villa? And nobody would nobody would say that was highly unusual. So more than likely, City will prevail. But I just feel that this year of all years, if City are going to have another slip up, why not tomorrow? And I think any any Liverpool fan would nearly be expecting it for them to come their way because of any team who over the years have had their hard luck stories as well, and their fair share of them over the last few years, they tend to come out the other side sm- smelling of roses. And you know, if it doesn't work out for Liverpool tomorrow... They won't really mind, will they? They still have plenty more things to be looking forward to. 
How do you assess it, Roy? I think Pep Guardiola needs to be a psychologist rather than a coach this week. I think that brittleness that we were, were talking about um, was very evident against Real Madrid. And this game is far, far, this weekend's games are far, far more important for Manchester City than, than Liverpool. It's a free shot for Liverpool. And, you know, there's a bit of sense, there's a sense of destiny, I think, about Liverpool's season, about their capacity to hold their nerve in those penalty shootouts. Mo Salah hasn't, has scored one game in the last 14 and they've found different players to step, step up. Minamino last week. City keep piling on the pressure, keep accumulating points. But Liverpool are right there. As Klopp said, they're in their neck. And all the pressure tomorrow is on, is on City. I think, logically, they should beat Aston Villa. But I just wonder. Um, Liverpool are moving... It's, it's almost a religious experience what's happening now, this pursuit of four trophies, something that even Alex Ferguson and his pump couldn't manage. The, the dice has fallen their way numerous times. Um, and I mean, Stevie G's slip is the most celebrated moment of his long and illustrious career. But imagine he won the title for, for Liverpool tomorrow. Sometimes the stars are aligned. Um, and Klopp... I, I think if you if you offered Liverpool a cho- Liverpool supporters a choice of the league or Champions League, even though there's this big day out against Real Madrid, the notion of denying Man City the league I think would really resonate with them. And if you look at the journey that they've travelled under Klopp and where they were under Klopp when he took over seven years ago, tenth in the league, and they are this one movement behind the most charis- charismatic leader in world sport, perhaps. And just when you have that sort of buzz, that sort of momentum, that sort of union of terrace and pitch, anything is possible. Yeah, I think Man City will do it, but it wouldn't surprise me if Liverpool did. Okay, interesting stuff. Will Rory McIlroy do it, Timmy McCarthy? Maybe not now. Well, well, I said actually on, on one of the program with Joe about four years ago, Paul Rose and myself were one with Joe one Saturday. Um, so at that stage, he was, what, four years after without a major... And then we were having a conversation about how many more majors he would win. And I said he'd be lucky to win one more. And I still hold that, John, very clear because I just... At the time, I said he'd be lucky to win one more. That was four years ago, and he hasn't obviously won in four years. So I think he's up against it now. I think that if McElroy puts well, he's practically unbeatable. But his putting is is inconsistent and you know at, at the best time. So Thursday, he made a lot of putts. Yesterday, he didn't make a lot of putts. Um, I think it's it's beyond him. I just think right now it's, it's beyond him. Obviously, you know, if he has a big day today, he puts himself right back in it. But the, he's under the pressure now. McIlroy in the last number of majors has done well on Sunday, even if you take the Masters, when he's been out of contention. And he's just free, you know, he's just free floating, you know, and that's when he's at his best. And on Thursday, we saw an element of that. He was free flowing, he was carefree. Many journalists were talking about a carefree attitude. You know, yesterday that tightened a bit. Um, psychologically tightened, you know, his game tightened a bit in that sense. And I just think he's up against it now. I think that, you know, like there's guys like Justin Thomas who went out just uh, in the worst conditions. I mean, Laurie went out in the worst conditions as well, just saying Seamus Power. McRoy got the best round side of the draw on both days. But Thomas had a, you know, a six under, even Bob was back in it. And obviously, you have Pereira and, and Zalatoris at, you know, nine and eight. So, uh, Right now, I wouldn't be betting. I wouldn't be betting money on Roy McIlroy to win the PGA. I just think that, um, 
his inconsistency on the green is what w- could catch him. I do believe there's another major in him, but I don't think that there's um, it'll, it'll come this weekend. The psychology of Rory McIlroy, Moratrasa, to me, he's the most free athlete I've ever seen. And when he's free, he can do anything, but he can't bottle the freedom for four rounds or even two and a half or three. And that is the issue that's preventing him from adding a fifth major, that he had that more in his earlier in his career. When he's not free, even in his body language, you can you can see it. And he's not able to... And you just don't know when it's going to arrive. It arrived on the final day of the Masters. It arrived on Thursday. I don't know if it's going to arrive this evening or not. But when he's behind, he's five shots behind now. It's just... It's, it's so frustrating to watch because we all want him to win, but we just don't know if, if, if he knows if he's able to do yeah. it. That, um, that kind of consistency just isn't there with him. And um, you, you would love to know what is going on in his head. And I'm always loath to do a psychological analysis on somebody I've never worked with. But what, and from the outside looking in, you would look at Rory McIlroy and you would see a man who, in fairness, he said to himself over the years that he possibly didn't apply himself as much as he could mentally or wasn't willing, was very much blaming external forces. It was my putter, it was my caddy, it was the weather, it was this, it was that. And in recent years, seems to have been realising he has a lot more control over his play than what he might have wanted to admit in a few years ago. And you can actually see that maturity coming into his play. Whether it's consistent yet, I think we've just laid out the evidence that it isn't consistent. Um, and definitely, the major is in him. Um, it probably isn't this weekend. I, I just, I don't see it. Again, like you were saying, you can actually see him stiffen up. His swing isn't as fluid his body language, is even the grimaces he makes, you can just tell that he kind of goes into a pattern of, I don't know if it's negative thinking or a tight tightness in body language that just doesn't allow him to physically flow. Um, it's definitely improving. Um, and this is probably the folly of youth, isn't it? When he was younger, there was no pressure. He was just out playing a game he loved and happened to be very good at it. And then the pressure of expectation and wasn't handled appropriately. And this is why he's at where he's at now. Um, still a genius I think we hold him to very high standards as well perhaps if he hadn't done as well when he was younger we mightn't be as critical watching him now whereas if he was any other Irish player we might say isn't he doing great Bob Bertala he's working with do you see a, a, a change do you see whether it's this week or not that he, he's going to be back in that major circle soon Roy I'm not sure I think in terms of natural ability you can make a compelling argument that Rory is Ireland's greatest ever sportsman but if greatness is measured by the capacity to deliver consistently on that talent. I would say he's not even Ireland's greatest golfer, that Porrick Harrington's achievements and winning three majors with his talent um, hugely stands ahead of what Rory has done. I think you've got to look at the fact that the eight years up to his 33rd birthday was when Tiger won 11 of his 15 majors. Rory has won none in that time. I think there's a psychological brittleness. I think he's an elementally decent human being who has perspective. And I think that's not always a great thing in a selfish sport where you almost have to be a one-dimensional automaton. Which Woods was. Which Woods was, absolutely. The world was just the next shot for him. W's, wins. Wins, exactly. Um, I thought it was interesting yesterday that Rory said after his rounds that the pressure is all on Zalatoris. He hasn't been there. The pressure is all on Rory. Look at that leaderboard and the one guy who's under most pressure to deliver is Rory McIlroy. This would be his 30th major without a win. Um, and with each one, I think it becomes more difficult. I thought for all the, you know, the razzle-dazzle about his Harlem Globetrotter round in the last, the la- on the Sunday in Augusta, that actually camouflaged the truth. It was again Rory coming from where he couldn't win. 
and people said, oh, he contended. He didn't contend. Scheffler took four putts on the last and still won by three when he knew the tournament was over. It's like you say, when Rory is free and when he's allowed, when the pressure is off, he can do things that nobody since Tiger has been able to do. But if you want to battle and grind, I would give Rory, and I hope I'm wrong, I would give Rory very little chance of winning this weekend. Okay, just before we wrap up, um, are you excited about the Talton Cup, Maratrasa? Um, yes, actually. Um, <laughs> I am. Um, I'm excited that to see some teams get a go out, but I think we can only be excited by how it's marketed, how it's packaged, but why wouldn't you? I think we have a very close mindset within the GA community of oh, if you're not in the fight for Sam, what's the point? The vast majority of teams who start off at the beginning of this year were never in the fight for Sam, so why not have them in the fight for something meaningful and a trophy? Everyone loves winning a trophy. It doesn't matter what it is. If it's under eights or senior football, a trophy is a good day out. And if another thing we're guilty of maybe in GAA as well is perhaps not celebrating those wins along the way. So I'm hoping, I really hope the Talton Cup, I'm excited by it. I hope everyone else is. And at least if we are, we might actually go and watch the games and support it. But we need good matchups. We need the GA to market it properly and we need to see them televised. Yeah, bring it. I'm really looking forward to it. I have a nephew playing in the Christy Ring Cup final for Kildare today. What's his name? Um, Cahill McCabe. And interestingly, um, he made the GAA's team of the week uh, three or four weeks ago alongside his Limerick and Galway heroes. He's only 19 going on 20 and he was was midfield next to Cahill Mannion. And for, you see all these teams and you wonder, do they matter? The excitement that created in that household but there's three generations of my wife's family going to Crow Park today and the pride and the joy and in many ways the essence of the GAA is found in competitions like that and I think if the Talchin Cup can get legs people can really see it I thought there were really interesting lines from Raymond Galligan at Cavan today talking about more games trips to Crow Park a chance to win a trophy and if the mindset if, if a few more can adopt that mindset this thing could take off and to fi- a final word with you on Timmy on the Talton Cup. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. I really believe it's a great idea. I mean, I was involved coaching Wexford in Division 4 a number of years ago. And if they had a chance to win the Talton Cup, they'd love to win it, you know. I mean, one team can win Sam. Probably um, six or seven teams can contend for Sam. In reality, if we take the you know the 34 teams that, that, that play the game, uh, six or seven teams can contend for it. So it gives it gives the the weaker counties, the counties who you know rarely get days out to to, to, to compete for Sam, a, a chance to win and win in Crow Park, you know, and win in front of of crowds. So yeah, I'm absolutely definitely up for it. And um, the big question is, will they sustain it? You know, because you know if you look at the Christie Ring, Roy talked about it, his nephew there. You know, that went through great moments and then it dropped off a bit, and now it's back again in a very strong way. So yes, definitely for it, and I. I uh, would love to see Wexford uh, get over the line and, and pick up the first one. First one's always nice to win, John, because, you know, you know, second ones are OK, but the first one's great to win. So the winner of the first Talton Cup will always be remembered as the first winners of it. So, you know, I'd like to see my, my former uh, teammates down in Wexford sneak one in that one. And hopefully, just to finish, Roy, we got a better calendar when we look back on how this split season works in a couple of years and go, you know what, maybe we need to extend the calendar a bit and have August and September for uh, inter-county. That, that's what would be my personal belief because I just feel at the moment they're competing for oxygen in a very crowded chamber The GAA would be my great passion in life I love Gaelic games and I think the greatest act of self-harm I've witnessed is handing, surrendering August and September. It is madness I've spoken to a number of people in the GAA off the record who've admitted as much. I think it's going to be a short term measure. 
I think there will be a movement certainly back to August although I still think the All-Ireland Finals should be in, se- should be in September um, a friend of mine was at the Munster game the Munster quarterfinal two weeks ago and went back into a well-known city centre pub to watch Cork and Kerry um, he was a Kerry man and he couldn't get it on the television because Leinster were playing and there was a late soccer match on. So here you have one of the most storied rivalries in Irish sport, albeit Cork having fallen from the previous high and it's not being shown in Irish bars. I mean, that's the timing. The The Dublin game in Parnell last week was maybe Dublin's most important hurling match in three three years. It was lost in the fog of big rugby and soccer games. August, September at the times the high-profile game should be being played. Roy, thanks Can so much I for coming counter in. that? Go on, more trust Sorry, just to give a quick counter on that, maybe the reason that game wasn't being shown is because the standard we just knew really wasn't going to be entertaining. And I think maybe what these new structures coming into place will give opportunities for the Corks to rebuild and get back where they are. But like to be the devil's advocate in this argument, I love what those inter-county games are played all year round. I love watching them. I love attending them. But we have to take the players into account as well. They're repeatedly saying the season's too long for them. So we need to find a balance. They're amateur players at the end of the day. We have to give the club championship their time to go as well. I don't know what the answer is, but just to be devil's advocate, you know, ask any play, a lot of the players who are in inter-county systems, and I've spoken to a lot of them, and I've worked with a lot of, well, some of them, they will all say they prefer this window. So I suppose where do we where do we draw the line and find the balance? I don't know, but I think possibly you're right, Roy. We may stretch a little bit more into August, but probably not beyond that. I think my personally my view is all these preliminary competitions got to go at the start of the year um, have a shorter league if the league doesn't matter as much or, uh, to be honest the answer is a league championship and that one big thing that you do say from May until August and that's it and then the rest of the time for club players all these preliminary competitions don't have the same meaning as the championship and then the championship is getting squeezed at the wrong time of year so it's not the length of time of the championship is when it's being played c- competing with other sports and, and that, that is for me wanting more people to watch GA, to get interested. Not every single member of the GA is a club person. And, you know, when Dublin and May are going to f- play in an All-Ireland, you could fill it twice over. And that they're the kind of people you want to be getting interested in the sport and then going and joining their local GA club. And the, the only way that can happen is when there's more amplification on it rather than getting lost in a competed, competing world with other sports. So, more Trasset, Timmy, thanks so much. Brilliant insight over the last hour. Thanks, John. Have great, great to be here. Maura, congratulations. And Roy, just before I let you go, the next time I see you, you might give me back the key of 285, obviously. <laughs> well, I, um, I, may, I, may, I may need it for my next trip to Cork with the price of hotels down there at the moment, Tim. <laughs> Have a great weekend, folks. See you. Slán. Thanks, Thanks Roy. Thanks, John. Thank you. The Saturday Panel on Off The Ball.